Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In November 2013, the Public Knowledge Forum brought together leading thinkers on technology, politics and the press from Australia and the United States. The event at the Sydney Opera House explored pressing questions about the future of journalism and its impact on governance and public policy. In conjunction with the United States Study Centre and Sky News Australia's APAC, the Walkley Foundation is delighted to present this series of six podcasts examining the state of journalism and asking, where to next? This episode, titled The Nature of Journalism, features former Media Watch presenter Jonathan Holmes, editor-at-large of the American interest Walter Russell Mead, New York University professor Jay Rosen, and ABC 730 host Lee Sales. Hi everyone, great to see a nice big full room. Uh, Welcome to our first panel session of the day, which is on the changing nature of journalism. So a nice narrow topic. We'll be exploring various issues such as impartiality versus activism, 24-7 news, uh, the public confidence in the mainstream media or the lack thereof. Uh, Joining me today is a very esteemed panel and just I'll get you to hold your applause until they're all on stage please. Firstly, Walter Russell Mead is the editor-at-large of the American Interest and is the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that he is one of the most respected minds in foreign policy in the United States. He's the author of several books, including the highly influential Special Providence, American Foreign Policy and How It Changed the World. Jonathan Holmes has been a television journalist for 45 years. He is a former foreign correspondent and the executive producer of several of the ABC's flagship programs and was most recently the anchor of Media Watch. And Jay Rosen is with New York University and one of the world's foremost journalism academics. His widely read blog, Press Think, has been running for more than 10 years. Please make our panel welcome. Uh, Now, before we get underway, I'd just ask you to switch your mobile phones to silent. We don't want them off because we want you to tweet and to be engaged in in social media and whatnot, (laughs) but we just don't want you to distract any of our speakers, so if you could do that for me, that would be great. Now, I'm going to ask each of our speakers to just make a brief five-minute opening, a few opening remarks, uh, and then we'll have a, a panel discussion I'll leave about 10 minutes at the end for some questions from the floor. There's a microphone over here and there's one on the upper level um, as well. So when we get to that time for questions, just line up behind those and I'll try to come to you. So if you think of anything as we're going along, just jot it down and hopefully we'll have some time at the end. Um, So, Walter, how about you kick us off? Okay, sure. Um, A few years ago, I was trying to figure out whether or not I wanted to get into this blogging thing that everyone was talking about. And I sort of agonized, uh, you know, looking back, I'm not sure why it took me so long to, to, to make up my mind. But I was wondering, you know, what, you know, can you really do anything interesting with a blog? Can you say anything important? Isn't that just kind of a crazy zoo out there? But what I, so I went back and I read some of the writers who have impressed me over the years. And one of the things I found was that a lot of the uh, sort of, early writing that I had kind of thought of as very important in the rise of democracy and modern civil society, say English controversial political writing of the period of the glorious revolution or later in the 18th century, it really was 
blogs in the sense that what you had was an individual writer who would write something in their garret in, in Grub Street or Fleet Street or whatever and send it to the printer who would immediately ca uh, put the unedited, put the stuff in print and it would be distributed that day uh, through the highest tech information available. Publications like The Spectator, which would come out three times a week and be, would, would be full of sort of, it was chatty, it was personal, it wasn't the great expert lecturing down to the audience. It was occasional writing. It would jump from culture to politics and so on. And it had a point of view. Um, these really were very much like what you would see on the internet today. I'm not saying that everything out there is as good as what Addison and Steele did. But in form, it's very similar and relationship to the audience. In fact, I found out as I looked into this more that some of these early publications actually had blank pages intentionally left at the end because they'd be, they'd be uh, in a coffee house that would have a subscription. I guess it's a little bit like Starbucks today with free Wi-Fi. And people would come in and sit at the coffee table, read the blog, read the spectator, whatever, and you would write comments in those back pages and you'd have some early flame wars and so on of people <laughs> angrily commenting. So, it looked to me uh, more and more as if the internet in some ways was getting back to a kind of a discourse that far from being at a time of political uh, stagnation or it was actually a time when some of the most important ideas about liberty and about the kind of social experiments, freedom of religion, uh, uh, the parliament controlling the king, all of these things took shape. Then I went and I looked at the American Revolution, and it was really more of, a, of the same. I'm sure if Tom Paine were with us today, he would have a blog. It might be called Common Sense. The Federalist Papers were essentially written as blog posts. We have today legal blogging is one of the major forms of blogging in the U.S. Well, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison essentially were operating a kind of a blog. Short pieces, no editor and sent out instantly and intended to, to shape a current public debate. So while there are a lot of problems with what the internet is doing to economic models, and I think there's some questions that some of the other panelists this morning may get into about, um, you know, what does this do in terms of the reliability or the objectivity of news and so on, I think a core thing we have to keep in mind is that in a really remarkable way, the internet has actually made it possible once again for somebody who has a message they want to get to the public, a point of view, a stance, to get out there and speak directly to large numbers of readers without a corporation, without editors, or without some other screen. Now these brands and so on exist, but it's still true today that some of the most successful blogs are done on an individual basis outside the corporate media. That's new, and frankly, I think it's a very good thing. Jonathan. The paradox um, is that huge numbers of people, certainly to judge by the kind of correspondence we used to get at Media Watch, uh, believe that what they want is just the facts. They don't want all this opinion. You know, just give us the facts. That's your job as judge. I don't know how often I've read that. Um, if you look at the evidence of what they read, they don't want that at all. And indeed, as we all know, unadorned facts are meaningless. 
I mean, facts that, don't, that aren't put in some context of a story, of some sort or other, are meaningless. Uh, but you know, the, the, the second half of the paradox, if you, certainly in the States, we, as we've seen cable television there, um, that old tradition of the, of the impartial uh, objective news has been driven out. Uh, CNN, poor old CNN, uh, cannot compete with MSNBC on the one side and Fox on the other, because people do want, um, you know, even on mainstream or at least cable television, let alone blogs and, and online, they want apparently uh, a very definite point of view. Uh, I, I, Mary Kissel, who's going to be on a subsequent panel from the Wall Street Journal, uh, writes in, in uh, the, the, the piece associated with the conference um, that uh, uh, the, 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 it is a conceit, this idea, a holy grail called balancing news, which everyone can and should agree on, but which ends up being a formula of he said, she said paragraphs. Um, uh, she calls it the epitome of, of lazy reporting. Now, that, that, that has become you know, an extremely fashionable view on the left and the right. Glenn Greenwald's recent exchange with, uh, with Bill Keller um, going over very similar ground uh, in which Keller is standing up for that conceit, if you like, to some degree, and, and Greenwald, who, of course, is, is from the left, as opposed to where I assume that Mary Kissel comes from, um, saying, well, well it's, it's dishonest. There is no such thing as objective journalism. Now, the problem for those of us who work um, in the public broadcaster, or used to, in my case, uh, and which, which, are, which are enormously important, uh, for better or worse, enormously important uh, mongers of news uh, in, 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 the United, in, 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 in the UK and Australia, if not in the United States, um, is that we uh, are legally obliged uh, to, uh, to stick with the notion of objective journalism. Uh, I had a look at the ABC Act before I came on this morning. Uh, the ABC's board, one of its duties in the Act is to ensure that the gathering and presentation by the Corporation of News and Information is accurate and impartial according to the recognised standards of objective journalism. If, you, if the ABC is going to abandon that notion, it's actually got to change the law. Uh, now, that's easy for some. Uh, I mean, many, many in this country would say, including, I may say, quite a lot of former board members, if not current board members of the ABC, uh, that the notion is a farce, and that in fact it's impossible to make the ABC. Um, they've tried, and they, they've, they've failed in their view um, to make the ABC genuinely objective or genuinely impartial. Uh, uh, Mary, again, to quote her, uh, would argue, I think, and I don't want to take word, but to, to quote her again, um, it's based on the notion that the information that information dissemination is a public service, not a consumer good, and that the two are mutually exclusive. This is the thinking that powers state-backed broadcasters, she says, an oxymoronic concept par excellence. And it's also why state media groups will never innovate like their private sector peers. Well, well I think anyone who, who, who's fair-minded in Australia would say that um, the state broadcaster here has innovated far more, uh, certainly in television, than its, than its peers, or certainly than its, than its free-to-air peers. Um, uh, it's just part of its job description is innovation, and I think it, it does it. Uh, but, but I think the, the really you know, interesting paradox, again, is that um, one, of the, one of the survivors um, of the digital revolution, um, so long as the public is prepared to go on paying for it, are the state broadcasters. They're immune from the, horror, the, 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 the extraordinary pressures on, on all commercial media. Uh, and yet, they're the ones who are kind of stuck with a notion 
that the digital age um, is rapidly making to look old-fashioned, if not, if not absolutely uh, uh, dishonest. Uh, and, and I think that's an interesting paradox that we could perhaps uh, look at later. Jay. Uh, in my introduction, I, I decided I wanted to debut some new material. Um, you can find it at my site, pressthink.org. I just published it about uh, half an hour ago. Um, but it, <laughs> it, resonates with, it resonates with a lot of what, what, what was said already. There is Old Testament journalism and New Testament journalism. The gods of a free press initially gave us the Old Testament and then the New Testament took over for about 90 years and lately the Old Testament has roared back to life and we have something close to parody or detente as I will explain. In Old Testament journalism the public is the people who gather around the news to argue about it. Political argument and the informational goods delivered by journalism are so intertwined as to be inseparable. What's happening and how we should think about it are joined together in holy union. A representative figure in Old Testament journalism would be, as Walter said, Tom Paine, who was a troublemaker trying to rouse public opinion against arbitrary authority. A representative figure today for Old Testament journalism would be Glenn Greenwald, recently of The Guardian, and the journalist most responsible for the Snowden revelations. He too is a troublemaker who tries to rouse public opinion against arbitrary power. The events by which Edward Snowden came to trust Glenn Greenwald over the New York Times tell us a lot about the return of Old Testament journalism today. In Old Testament journalism, financial support is difficult to obtain. Opposition is fierce. The authorities are frequently upset with what gets printed. Popularity balloons and contracts. It is a turbulent ride and a precarious way of life. Old Testament journalism began in the US with the campaign to unite the colonies against England. It then had a diminished but not dead presence in the 20th century. It became more of a, a subcurrent, but it never stopped flowing. New Testament journalism sees the public as people who are outsiders to political events. They are busy with other things, preoccupied with making a living and raising their kids. And as outsiders, they need to be informed of what the insiders know. Salvation in New Testament journalism is achieved by separation of facts and values, symbolized, of course, by the division between the news pages and the opinion section in American newspapers, or by the constitutional imperative to be impartial uh, that is encoded into the BBC and the ABC in Australia, as Jonathan just explained. Who is the Tom Paine of the BBC? There is none, and there will never be one. Occasionally the host of Media Watch, but... <laughs> <laughs> New Testament journalism is a 20th century development. It is associated with the doctrine of objectivity in journalism, and especially with the rise of professionalism in the press, which began with the first journalism schools around 1910, the first press associations in the 1920s and the 1930s. 
In New Testament journalism, the media's financial security is the norm, made possible by high barriers to entry, large capital costs required to deliver the news. New Testament journalism is more risk adverse because the franchise is so valuable and needs to be protected. The mission is not to move public opinion and convince, convince people, um, but it is to maintain trust over time, or to put it another way, to pro protect the brand. Audiences tend to be stable. The authorities learn to regularize their relationship with the journalists. Professionalism in journalism coincides with professionalism in politics and business and other knowledge professions. But the New Testament journalism also has its heroic forms, especially investigative journalism. And so a representative figure would be somebody like Bob Woodward of the Washington Post or Robert Redford in All the President's Men. <laughs> the symbolic high point for New Testament journalism was August 1974 when Richard Nixon resigned. Old Testament journalism treats everyone as a participant in the great conversation of democracy. New Testament journalism recognizes that there are insiders and outsiders, players and spectators, and the outsiders have to be informed by the press or they can't participate. In New Testament thinking, people need the facts and then they can develop an opinion and make up their own minds. In Old Testament logic, people need to join the argument, and that is what will cause them to look for and seek out information. New Testament journalism is strong on reliability, predictability, professionalism, civility, and the maintenance of reputation over time. Old Testament journalism is strong on participation, mobilization, uh, personal voice, and it is more likely to generate extreme loyalty. New Testament journalism has vices, mostly the coziness with power, putting a premium on access, and the conservative outlook that comes from having something to lose, a valuable franchise. Old Testament journalism has vices too. It's financially precarious, so it can be bought off, and it goes to extremes more often and therefore distorts the picture. In Old Testament journalism, the constant risk is that truth-telling will decay into propaganda. In New Testament journalism, the constant risk is that truth-telling will decay into he said, she said, and the dialogue of insiders that I have called the cult of the savvy. Recently, these two forms have been growing closer together, and the financial crisis in Old Testament journalism has opened it more to the forms of, um, excuse me, the financial crisis in New Testament journalism has opened it forms to, to the forms of the old and a recognition that these two things can coexist. The dialogue between Glenn Greenwald and Bill Keller that uh, Jonathan mentioned is um, a kind of a recognition that these two things uh, can both uh, be successful. And so there's a, a, a kind of detente emerging between the two. They were terrific opening statements. Thank you very much, everybody. I'm tempted to keep the biblical um, metaphor going and ask, Jay, are we in end times? And if so, who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? But, uh, but um, instead, I'm going to open with something uh, that 
neither of the three of you really touched on, which is whether we're talking, uh, you know, Old Testament, New Testament journalism, um, digital media, blogs, whatnot, um, legacy media, public broadcasters, there has been and there is evidence of a decline in public faith and confidence in the media. Um, there are all manner of theories as to why that is the case. What are your views on that, Walter, first? Well, I think it, it comes primarily from, you know, society is becoming less united in its worldview. Uh, some people have done some very interesting historical work that the experience of World War II in a number of countries where everyone united under, a, under strong government leadership and, by God, the government solved some big problems, defeated Germany and Japan. Then, and you know, you have the, the memory in the U.S. of the Great Depression before then. You have a whole generation that believes that we can organize effectively to solve the big problems in front of us. And the sort of job of the media, the job of everything is, is to organize us all for, for common effort. Uh, as we've gotten further away from that period, you're starting to see a return to what Jay would, would call Old Testament political conditions, maybe, where there's a, there's a more fragmented public, different ethnic groups. You know, men and women might argue with each other on the basis of gender kinds of issues. The, the, the political spectrum becomes much broader and many, many more fine differentiations between it. So that means that when in America we used to have the three big networks plus maybe PBS, they defined a broad center of information that more or less corresponded to the way a lot of people saw things. In the last 50 years in America, politics have changed. People are becoming more individualistic in their ideas. The center has kind of lost its hegemonic hold on the way people think. And so you have a lot more people looking at those evening news broadcasts and saying, you know what, I don't think that's true. And with the internet, now you have this sort of ability to either fact check or pseudo fact check, depending on how you're going, so that if you disagree with something that Walter Cronkite or Dan Rather, whoever it may be, says, you can go find a, a thousand bloggers who are picking apart his statements and confirming your view that what he says is, is wrong. So it's part of, I think, a small-d democratization of society. And in a sense, all leadership elements are, you know, people don't have the same kind of faith in the U.S. and I think in some other countries in their government as they used to, in political parties, in doctors. In the old days, the doctor told you what was wrong with you and, you, and, and what you should do, and you just followed it up. Now you immediately go home and Google whatever he said and find out like 800 other ways of thinking about it, and you feel that it's, it's your duty to challenge the doctor where you think that he's got it wrong. So it's good. It's, it's, in one sense, it's a lot of liberation of ordinary people who don't rely on a professional class of administrators, journalists, politicians to tell them what's right and wrong, but it does make government a much harder job to do, and I, and I think it also makes it harder for media groups like ABC that, that in some way are accountable to this increasingly atomized and critical public. Jay, what's your take on that? I would subscribe to everything Walter just said and add this part. Um, political journalists in particular, but I think this would hold for other areas too, 
have played a kind of a double game for a long time um, in, in this sense. Their rhetoric and their self-image is that they inform the public. This, this is all of their um, justification, their, their professional religion, if you will, is that we are the information conduit to, to the great public out there. However, if you look at their professional lives and, and the, the, re, the details of their work, they are most of the time talking about and informing a political class, not the public. Um, and the contradiction between those two things of we say we address the public and we inform the public, but actually what we do is kind of an adjunct to the political class never had to be faced because there wasn't as Walter said, much of an alternative to that. Now it has to be faced. And in fact, Lee, you and I had a little go-round about this last time I was in Australia, where I just commented on the fact that there's this very popular, or at least long-running program on the ABC called The Insiders, where the insiders are the journalists, right? which is kind of funny, I mean, in a way, because it, it testifies to this contradiction. So your question was, why is there a decline in trust? I think there's many reasons. It's one of those over-determined things, like many factors come together to, to produce that. Walter talked about a bunch of them. But, I, but this one, I think, doesn't get enough recognition, is that journalists say that they're engaging the nation in the news, but actually they work with this political class. And when the political class comes to be mistrusted, it inevitably has a huge effect on the journalists as well. Jonathan, you mentioned that you constantly, when you're at Media Watch, had viewers saying, well, we just want the facts, we just want the facts, but their patterns of media consumption show that people actually want, really, their own opinions parroted back to them. And, and that's what, in a lot of cases, media organisations are delivering. I'm wondering if the emphasis on opinion and the... Um, blurring of the lines between opinion and traditional news reporting are a contributing factor to the lack of trust in the mainstream media? Well, well I think they may be. Uh, uh, certainly, you know, Australia and America are very different countries. Uh, and, and what Walter and Anjay have said, I think, is much truer of the United States than it is of Australia. In this country and Britain, for example, the, the, the political schism, the Gulf, has narrowed enormously in the last 50 years. There, was a, there were genuine communists in this country for a long time. Certainly, the Labour Party was far further to the left than it is now. Um, although, although arguably so was the Liberal Party. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and, you know, I can remember in the 1970s in Britain, the militant tendency in, in the Labour Party um, was enormously powerful and extraordinarily radical. Um, all, of those, all of those dramatic dichotomies have disappeared, and yet we have... Uh, less faith in, in the centrist position. I mean, in Australia, because of our voting system, um, the centre has far more power than it does in the United States. Uh, people have to vote, and so, and so to win, you have to appeal to the, to the middle. But, but, I mean, I think in the last election, um, it, it, News Limited did itself no favours. Uh, but, I mean, OK, maybe I would say that. Uh, I'm not sure that the evidence is there yet to know whether the Telegraph's you know, readers went up or down in Western Sydney or what their reaction was to being told on the very first day of the campaign that they should kick out the government. Um, but my sense is that there is a bit of a reaction to this now, that people are actually are sick of, of, of only being told what other people think and what they should think. 
and not being given sufficient information that's relatively, uh, that's relatively value-free. Um, now, for, for all the difficulties of doing that, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that the ABC, according to all the polls that we have in this country, um, um, is much more trusted, dramatically so, than any other news medium in this country. I don't think that's a coincidence. What if, if the media um, is moving towards, um, I guess, the way that Walter and Jay have described it in the US, and that you mentioned as well, um, Jonathan, where CNN struggles um, and MSNBC and Fox mm. have, have picked up um, a strong audience. Looking at it rather than from an audience perspective for people who then work in journalism, I mean, what if you're not an ideologue? Is the profession of journalism going to become only full of people with strongly held opinions at either end? A, Green, a Glenn Greenwald, for example, who thinks that, well, this is the truth and it's my duty to get that truth out. Yeah, and, and, and Glenn, you know, says um, that he absolutely accepts uh, that you are useless as a journalism, however strong your opinions, if your facts aren't right. Um, so, I mean, he's not resiling from the importance of getting, getting it right. Um, he's saying, uh, I'm, what I get right, what I choose to focus on is steered by my interests and my passions and, and readers need to know what they are. Now, I think it's a completely defensible point of view and it's very difficult for people at the ABC to follow that, that routine because of the legal constraints around us. So, I don't know how this is going to be resolved, but as I say, uh, it, it is worth noting that at the moment the public does seem uh, to, to trust what they get from the ABC more. Whether they actually uh, like it better or read it more uh, is another question, of course. Well, well, I don't think it's... You know, I think actually if you look at the history of the English-speaking countries generally, uh, we haven't really had a violent revolution that succeeds in, what, 1776? was the last one, which suggests there are a lot of people in these countries who, while they may have political views of left or right, are, are centrist in the sense that there's a kind of a, there is a kind of a, a hunger for common sense news that you don't have to be Glenn, Glenn Greenwald or, or Glenn Beck to reach a large audience. Some of the names that I mentioned in these very distinctive individual writer, journalists, uh, whether you think of Ben Franklin or James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, you wouldn't call them necessarily radicals of any stripe. So I think, there, I, I think that centri but during this, what, what uh, Jay called this New Testament age, there was a sort of a conflation with, of centrist with sensible and dull. And I think that may be CNN's biggest problem in the United States is probably that it's just kind of boring, um, which neither Fox nor NBC's, I, MSNBC, I think they looked at some polls and something like a third of Fox's audience are Democrats who are probably not watching it because they agree, but because, you know, <laughs> things are happening on it. Um, and so, you know, can... Can common sense, moderate, sensible, straight down the road uh, ideas be made interesting? Well, that's a question of style and presentation. But I don't see why it has to, you know, why it has to be. Abraham Lincoln was not a dangerous radical, but he was a very entertaining and popular speaker. I have a, a slightly different view. Um, I think there's there's two ways of being trusted now in journalism. They, they work in different ways. Um, the first, which I associated with New Testament journalists, 
Bill Keller, editor of the Times, calls this the old school in journalism. <laughs> I disagree with him about that. But is to say, um, uh, I have this account of what's going on in the world, and you should trust it because I don't have a point of view, I don't have a philosophy, I don't have a stake, I don't have an interest in it, so believe it because these are the facts. And that is one way of being trusted. Another way of being trusted is to say, here's who I am, here's where I'm coming from, this is what I believe in, this is, what I, this is who I align myself with, and I went out and reported this story, and so you should trust it because you know where I'm coming from. And I think we should recognize that these are different ways to be trusted. They generate a different kind of value for the journalist and for the organization that sponsors them. Uh, but they both work in a way. <laughs> Furthermore, I would say that for everybody who's trying to be trusted in journalism, it's going to be critically important that your stories stand up to scrutiny after it's published. So that's sort of one way to decide who, who's trusted is, does your story hold up? Right? Also, you're going to have to point to your sources so that we can check out not just your story, but the sources on which it is based, um, and show your work. Show your work means explaining to people how you got there what you consulted, and whether you are more of the uh, old school, new school, Old Testament, New Testament, all of those things are going to be critical to trust. So I'm kind of trying to be ecumenical about this, maybe cool down the war a little bit between these two styles because I don't think it's necessary. Because the period of hegemony when one group of journalists practicing one way could say, we are journalism, I think is decidedly over. More so in the US than in Australia, but even in Australia, it's going to be over. But, oh, these dichotomies have always been there and the greys and the... Uh, when I first took over Four Corners back in the early 1980s as executive producer, um, coming from the BBC to the ABC, and the, a, one of our senior reporters, much older than me, went out and did a story, a political story, and it was a classic he said, she said effort. And I watched the rough cut and I said, well, well what do you think? And he said, well, I'm not supposed to say what I think. You know, that's not... I said, you've just been out there for three weeks. You've been, you've been talking to everybody. The viewers want to know what you, the reporter, think. He said, but that's not objective, that's not impartial. I said, of course it is. As long as when you started, you didn't have a view. That's the important thing, that, you, that, that you, are, you convince us that you have been convinced by one side or the other, that's fine. Um, now, so, I mean, these debates have been going on for a long, long time. And if you're going to be interesting, uh, as Walter says, it's no good just, just being he said, she said. That's never going to be interesting. And, and if you look at shows like Four Corners in this country, um, they, they usually come to a conclusion. Uh, that, that doesn't mean, to my mind, and I don't think to most people's minds, that, 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 that the journalist is departing from uh, the duty of an ABC journalist. Yeah. I guess um, sometimes as a consumer of news, though, what, what bothers me in the conclusions that some journalists reach um, is that I don't trust that they haven't selectively overlooked facts that don't back right. the case that they're trying to make. Absolutely. And, 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 and what, you know, look, 
of course, if, if, you, if you are pretending not to have a position when you actually do, um, and there's a huge suspicion, especially, I suppose, on the right in this country, that that is the case for most ABC journalists, for example, you know, that they actually are coming from a political position, but they simply don't admit it because they weren't allowed to admit it. That, that's where you get this distrust. This, this, this um, so, so, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that I disagree with the, the kind of cases that, that the Glenn Greenwalls as well are putting. Um, what, I, what, I, what I do think is that it, it's possible to be objective and decisive at the same time. Jay, I know you've written about um, objectivity, and there's, of course, been a huge discussion around journalism, whether objectivity has actually um, ever existed or, or is valid. Nonetheless, it has traditionally been one of the ethical foundations on which professional journalism is built. If we were to say, well, we don't accept you know, that objectivity ever exists, what then should be the ethical foundations of professional journalism? I think it's things that I mentioned before. It's um, skill in reporting, um, being strict about the verifiability of what you report, uh, being able to show your work and show how you got there, uh, the ability to withstand attack uh, if, you're, if your story holds up. I would also add, Lee, that what was called objectivity or this claim that we don't have any views seems like a strong position for an organization like the ABC to hold. But in a, in a funny way, it's also weak. Because the, if you are making a claim that, you, that is very hard for people to believe, like, we don't have any views, then every little piece of evidence that contradicts that claim can be thrust into your face as evidence that you are fundamentally dishonest. And that's the weakness of objectivity. That's why it is, it is being chipped away at so successfully in a lot of ways, because claiming something that is so easy to contradict puts you constantly mm -hmm. into this culture war. Let's uh, open it to questions now. So if you'd like to ask a question, just take yourself off to one of the microphones and don't be shy. We're all very friendly. And uh, I'll call on you, and uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so left, so don't waste time if you do want to ask something. Yes. Uh, my question is, uh, is there time, given the diminishing resources in the newsrooms, to form a view? Jonathan, do you want to answer that, since it relates uh, to your I point? think it's a really good question. Um, I haven't had to practice, you know, as a news journalist in, in, a, in a modern newsroom. Um, I, I sat in judgment on it for a long time with, with, a, with, in a very, you know, with, with a lot of resources to do it and plenty of time and we had six or, six or seven people working on 2,000 words a week, can you imagine? Um, and of course the journos these days have to work extraordinarily fast and I don't think there is time for them to form a view, nor in a way should they. But, we're, but we're, what I think we've been talking about today is, is the longer form, you know, the blogs of the people you have got a bit of time. But yes, this, this issue of time is a huge issue. For, for, for accuracy as well as for judgment. I think what we may be seeing is, uh, you know, again, a lot of the people that, that uh, we mentioned in the world of Old Testament journalism weren't full-time professional journalists. Benjamin Franklin did a lot of other things besides write about politics and events. Even Tom Paine, I think he invented a new form of bridge design or something. Mm -hmm. And so what you may, you may find that 
journalism is always subsidized. You know, the help wanted ads subsidize the investigative reporting or whatever. The internet has killed a lot of that subsidy. But the subsidy may come in other ways from people who are working in other professions and then that feeds their journalism habit or whatever. So there may be some ways around it, but it's definitely a constraint. If you don't have time to really know what you're talking about, but you have to talk <laughs> because you're on television, you're a pundit, what do you do? You rely on ideology. You just, mm. you have reflexes. You just consult your ideology and you can manufacture opinion on the spot. So that's what a pundit is. Yes, sir. Um, my question may be a little bit obscure for the two overseas speakers, but uh, it seems to me the ABC in Australia, apart from delivering so-called objective journalism, has this responsibility of nation building and community building, and they tend to contradict each other. One example being last week I rang up and complained about the ditching of library books from public libraries at Leichhardt and Marrickville Council while they had a guest from the New South Wales Library Association on 702 Linda Mottram in the morning only to be glibly dismissed because they didn't want to break down the consensus of uh, building confidence in public libraries. So what's but, your question please sir? Well my question is that the, the contradiction between the ABC as a nation builder and community builder and upholding of uh, middle class standards versus uh, allowing dissident voices to really uh, percolate to the top, a la Reid Humphrey McQueen's Australia Media Monopolies and the role of the ABC as a propagandist for the state. Jonathan? Oh gosh. <laughs> He was, he was right that the overseas journalists would not be able to follow the details of that Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> I, I'm with Let you all the way. I'm not going to be, you know, Mr. ABC here. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't really fully understand the, the, the question, to be absolutely honest with you either. So, uh, Jay, you got things to do? I do. Yeah. Well, the ABC has a role not only in informing... Um, Australians about what's going on, but in forming an Australian identity. It is a national institution that is supposed to kind of keep Australians together. And there's a contradiction between information that threatens to divide people and perhaps weaken their confidence in the key institutions of Australian life and this other function of building a, a, a community of people who are proud to be Australians and, 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 and cherish living here. So I think, I think there, is, there is something to that. that there, but, but great journalists who earn authority with their community, part of what they have the authority to do is say, I love this place, you love this place, but we have a lot of problems or we have a lot of divisions. And I think that's where the real skill and, and sort of professional majesty of journalism lies. Yeah. Jim. Oh, sorry, Jonathan, did you oh, want Just to add, I don't, yeah. I've worked for the ABC off and on for 30 years and no one ever told me that our job was community well, building. No, I'll I, I bet you historians yeah. of, of the ABC would know what the gentleman was talking about. I bet they would be able to find origins that suggest that very thing. Mm. Um, I have a question for the t my two fellow Yanks on, on, on the panel, and I ask it knowing that the first answer will be, it depends. But I'm asking you to, 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 to go beyond that. 
Part of our discussion in this entire forum is the connection between changes in journalism and the, the related uh, effects in the public mind and how people uh, view their, their communities, the nation, the world, et cetera. Do you think there's evidence that for the American public now, people are either worse informed than before, more credulous about things that are not um, true, or more polarized in their knowledge than at times in the recent past? Or is, so is it worse or is it just different from what it was a generation ago, 50 years ago? Walter. You know, I think it's, uh, first of all, I, I have to tell you, I'm indescribably distressed to be called a Yank in public <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a South Carolinian. That is, uh, uh, you know, I, I, South I Carolina, I think its unofficial state motto is, if at first you don't secede, try, try again. Um, but uh, look, I, I don't actually think that the American public is more polarized than it was, say, 50 years ago. Because at that time, I mean, I can remember seeing pictures of television of tanks going down the streets of Detroit to suppress race riots. And you think about uh, school integration, the civil rights movement. There you have a country that is being torn apart over basic questions of identity and ideas. Um, you think about the McCarthyite era in the early Cold War. And so I think in many ways, well, you know, in the 1920s, you have the KKK rising as sort of, you know, attacking Catholics and blacks and, you know, Jews and all of these people. You know, it's, it's, America is a very, has a very turbulent past. I think we had perhaps in the, you know, after the civil rights era, there was a kind of a, a sort of a somewhat quiet era that is fraying now. Now, are people better informed than they used to be? You know, what is, what is one's assessment? I mean, do they agree with me more than they used to, to some degree, is, is what that question is about. Uh, you know, it looks to me like about this, the polls show about the same percentage of people don't believe in the theory of evolution as did 30 years ago. So I can't, I can't answer that question. Uh, I don't see a huge change for the worse, I will say that. Jay, anything to add? I think, I think Jim, that... People aren't less informed than they used to be, and I don't think that there's evidence that they're more divided than ever. I'm not sure that's true. But what I think is true is that within the political class, there are fewer restraints. There is less consensus within the class of people who kind of operate politics in this country. And there is more, a greater willingness to defect from the various establishments and align with populist uprisings of various kinds within the political class. And perhaps the period that Walter described from World War II on um, had its greatest effect within a political elite mm -hmm. that was consensualist in some ways and, and, and no longer is. Um, so you have that, and I, and I think the warning sign for me that this was happening was an article I'm sure you remember by Ron Suskind in fall of 2004, which has in it the great line, uh, well, you people in the reality-based community don't understand that we create our own reality. That line, which came from a nameless Bush advisor, was to me the, the sort of the signal fire 
alerting the political class that this consensual period where everybody was kind of, sort of able to work on the same reality had ended. Uh, and I think we've seen the consequences since. But l let me just f jump in here to say that at the same time that the public, you know, that you, know, you look at what's going on in Congress and they're screaming at each other nonstop, the minute they leave office, they join lobbying firms that are mixed Republican and Democratic. Mm. In that sense, the consensus of the political class, you know, the consensus of the political class is let's milk the system for all it's worth, True. and then let's fool the rubes by talking about ideas when the cameras are on, and to some degree manufacturing an appearance of, of maybe deeper disagreement more fundamental disagreement and magnifying how I'm, I'm sincere. I really hate the ideas of the other side. Then, of course, when I retire and go to K Street, I'll get a job. I won't care who I'm advocating as long as they're paying my bills. So that there's a disingenuous use of ideology, I think, often by the political class. Um. Unfortunately, here in the reality-based community, we are out of time. Uh, so please thank our panel for that great discussion. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.